Well, greetings this morning in the worthy name of Jesus, the one who John wrote in Revelation in his introduction. He said, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Also, greetings from the church at Living Waters in Sugar Creek, Ohio. We have the same battle that you do in Pennsylvania. I'm sure we would all agree with that. So this morning, for looking into God's word for a message, I uh, chose to have a message out of the Epistle of Jude. So turn in your Bibles to the Epistle of Jude, the book before Revelation. There's only one chapter. The title could be Earnestly Contending for the Faith, or also Keep Yourselves in the Love of God. The two go together, earnestly contending for the faith and keep yourself in the love of God. So we'll read some verses here at the beginning of the chapter, and then for the end of the message, Lord willing, we'll be looking at verses at the end of the chapter. So beginning to read here in the epistle of Jude, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God, the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities... About them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now dropping to verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So looking at these verses for a text, we see here the first three, they mention six names. The first three are groups of people. The last three are individuals. And I think we, should, we do well to recognize the emphasis here is that we are in Christ Jesus. And this is talking to believers. This is being written to believers. This is not being written to non-Christians. And I'm sure uh, those of us who name the name of Christ as our Savior, we would all agree that we have this joy in Christ Jesus, and it should be that way. But everything is not automatic. You know, there is a work in this Christian life. And concerning that, we do well to recognize that there is also the possibility of falling away from God and falling from grace. That, that uh, 
One of the last verses will tell us that. He that is able to keep you from falling. Verse 24, often used in the benediction. So Jude, in this setting, he would have liked to write about the common salvation. And I would also really like to just preach about the common salvation. The great mediatorial work that Jesus did on the cross. You know, this is a wonderful story. It's the most, as we sang, it's the wonderful story of Jesus. Tell me the story of Jesus. But we do well to recognize that we have about us an enemy. Satan, who, who is touched in these verses also, who is mentioned in these verses, I should say. We have about us an enemy that is unrelenting. In fact, he just would like nothing rather than to see God's people, than to see God's children to be falling or moving away from God. And I think the, the more we give recognition to that fact, that that is a possibility, and that is the Christian life, it will help us to seek and to search and to put in effort to remain in God and His truth. Now, first of all, I would like to mention concerning that Please understand, have understanding in this that I am not a works preacher, so to speak. You know, I, I recognize that, you know, grace, Ephesians 2 tells us, for, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. That is my belief. And we do well to recognize that you know, it is a gift, and it truly is a gift. But the Christian life is work. It takes zeal. So that's what we would like to concentrate on this morning, the being preserved in Jesus. And first of all, as Peter also writes, I would like to give us the comfort that, you know, we have the promise that we can be kept by the power of God, as Peter writes. And as that other verse tells us, he is able to keep us from falling. But Jude, in this setting, he said it was needful. In other words, it was necessary to write what he will write. We do well to recognize we have the capability of falling. He was exhorted. He, he is urging us to a course of action. Now, looking at three words here that are very powerful. There is three very powerful words here, and they come... In the order of earnestly contending for the faith. And interestingly, in the English language, these are three parts of speech. Earnestly is an adverb. It describes the verb. So we'll look at that word first. If we think of the word earnest, what comes to our mind? And when I saw Brother David this morning, I was reminded of a pleasant memory that I have of being in the same church as his father. Jonas was a, I, I, I liked him as song leader. He was this older man, and he would start these songs in the tone of an older man. But one thing I always remember is that when he turned to page 19 in your songbooks, page 19 in the Christian hymnary, Oh, Worship the Lord, above that song is in italics the word earnestly. And Jonas would mention this, that he likes this word earnestly above this song. You know, there's the old German saying, If you would serve the Lord, do it earnestly. Earnestly means that we 
put effort in. We give ourselves to it. We strive. We, uh, we, we are active in it. Another meaning of earnest is those in the real estate business, a down payment is, is and can be called earnest money. Really just brings out that if you're making a down payment, willing to give money, a percentage, you are earnest about the purchase. So I would just like to bring that to our minds this morning. Let us be earnest in serving God. Earnestly. Now, if we think of contending, contending is a very strong word. Contending means that there is opposition, as I mentioned. That there is a battle. There is a struggle against. Contending means to strive for, and most of all, contending means to persevere. You know, there is a big difference in just being engaged and then it's over. The Christian life is persevering. The Christian life is not a hundred-yard dash. The Christian life is a marathon into the sunset. We need to persevere. Jesus said, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Another entering aspect of, interesting aspect of contending is, you know, in our day, and sometimes um, it seems almost comical, in our day, a lot of competitions among children are actually, they just, are, they, they're rewarded just to participate. That's not the way the Christian life is. You know, it tells us that we are to finish and we are to contend. And interestingly, another term that's used in competitions such as the Olympics, there may be 10 people in this certain competition, but usually only the, the, maybe the last two or three in this group are called contenders. And my friends this morning, I would just encourage each one of us, let's be contenders, not just participants. There's a big difference. Let's be contenders, not just participants. In the same way that the children of Israel, they were told to go in and to possess the land, but they ended up just occupying for the most part. And we'll touch, may touch more on that later. So now, we described earnestly, we described contending. You know, life is real. Life is earnest. As Longfellow wrote, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. To dust thou art, to dust returneth, was not spoken to the soul. Now, this last word, we have earnest, we have contending, now we have the faith. Earnestly contending for the faith. And I would just like to spend a little time on this. The faith. This is not the verb faith, believing. This, the faith, is a noun. In the Greek, it's the word pistis, which means truth and righteousness and absolutes. And I think it's very important that we have a better understanding of this. And I am talking to myself first. There is this thing in our day that is the truth, that is righteousness. That is absolute. It includes God's order and plan and the commands of God. The truth. It is not just a cultural belief. It is an eternal truth. Not 
all religions are the faith. I, I think in our day we are being bombarded with this ecumenical idea. And it, usually, for instance, if you talk to a Muslim, one of the first things they usually say is, we all believe in one God. Well, that be as it, you know, be that as it may, but we are, we are being taught, taught and being bombarded to look at everything as relevant, that it could change in certain situations. It is okay to lie in a certain situation. It is okay to do this in a certain situation. We are being taught against established truth. Let's remember that. This even Darwin, that was his theory, that if he takes God out of life, it will make everything relative. That is not the truth. God is all about life, but God is a God of truth. We do well to recognize this. There are absolutes. And this is the same word faith that Paul used at the end of his life when he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That is the faith. And also in our preparatory services, for the most part, we give the, you know, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Those are some different times that this pistis word, this Greek word, is used in the Bible. There are absolutes in life. Not everything is relative. There is a right and a wrong. There is a good and an evil. We, we cannot and dare not be tolerant of everything and anything. And it's so sad, you know, just for instance, as an example. So in our modern colleges, there are some colleges that have eight possibilities to check for gender. Can you imagine Eight possibilities to check for gender. There are absolutes. There is the truth. And Paul also said at the end of his life, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So, I would, as I mentioned, it would be easier and I would rather just preach about the love of Jesus. But we want to look and recognize all the counsel of God. We do well to recognize the enemy is about us to steal, to kill, and destroy. And there is a danger of us removing ourselves from that sacred position in Christ. And I think Jude was dealing with what every generation has to deal with. It's interesting, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but it's the truth that even in the Garden of Eden, after the fall of man, Cain and Abel, their worship, we see that there was true worship, that it was acceptable with God, and there was also false worship. I think every generation has to deal with this. The thing of truth and falsehood. So, you know, even in Jeremiah's time, we read that they said peace, peace, when there was no peace. And they smoothed things over. In fact, as one verse says, the truth is perished. And also we see here in this verse 5, uh, verse 4, excuse me, it says that they turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. In verse 4 here in Jude. And Romans, Paul tells us that should we continue in sin, that grace may abound. God forbid. You know, there's a great danger of this. God's glorious mercies and grace to us of using this for lasciviousness. So I think every generation had to deal with this. Now, 
looking at these six examples who were considered, I, I would say they were considered once in a safe position with God. They had the same teaching that their peers did. So let's look first of all at these children of Israel. These children of Israel are given, Corinthians tells us that they were given to us for examples. The word is types. You know, they were called unto liberty. We could spend much time in their slavery in Egypt. They were called unto liberty. They were delivered by the mighty hand of God. They had a great and wonderful opportunity, but that does not guarantee ultimate success. You know, they had the promise that the rock that followed them, the New Testament tells us that the rock that followed them was Christ. They had the fire and the cloud to lead them. They saw the mighty and the wondrous works of God. They saw the ten plagues. They witnessed the Passover. They crossed the Red Sea. They received water out of the rock. They were fed manna and quail. God, in sense, had given them a blank check. You know, God had told Moses, I am that I am. When Moses asked God who he was, he said, I am that I am. He, he provided deliverance. The sea was divided, the man and the quail, the water out of the rock. They had shoes and clothes that didn't wear out. They crossed the Jordan. They crossed the Jericho. The giants were destroyed. The walls of Jericho fell. They saw most of these miracles within the first year of leaving Egypt. And, you know, we would just think that they should have seen enough to trust God fully and completely. And those of us who experience Jesus in our lives you know, take warning of this. We should have enough of a foundation of experiencing this that we should just fully trust God. But we are susceptible to unbelief also. So, they viewed God as too weak. And this is one of the saddest stories in the Bible to me. Here were these people who had witnessed all this, what God had done. And they were right at the southern border of Canaan. They were at Kadesh Barnea, right outside the gate, so to speak. And they viewed God as too weak to help them enter. And we know how it went. It was mostly because of the spies came back with an evil report. And for years I felt sorry for these children of Israel in a sense that the spies brought back the evil report. Why did they actually send spies? I always felt that if they would have trusted God, he would have opened it and they could have entered but in, in Deuteronomy, we actually read that the children of Israel asked Moses if it wouldn't be a good idea to send spies. So had they actually, in a sense, brought this upon them themselves, even though Moses okayed it and, and took it as from God. So, but anyway, the spies came back with the evil report. And one thing that always stands out to me is the influence of people. These, these spies... These, were, these 12 men that were sent were all leaders. They were one of the most, the group of most influential men in the whole big group of people, this church in the wilderness. And 10 came back with this evil report. And it spread throughout the whole camp. And it, it's just so sad to think that all these people, they were at the entrance. And those 20 years and older were all denied going into Canaan, except Joshua and Caleb. And that must have been a miserable time, those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. There was many, many funerals. If there were 
like 1.2 million people, 30,000 pass per year, or approximately 82 a day. And even then, after they, the, one, the younger ones, after they entered, you know, they fared well for a while, but then the Bible tells us that they looked out among the other nations. And I've often wondered, you know, what is this great attraction of looking out? You know, we are blessed with so many blessings. This joy of life in Jesus, what causes us to look out among the nations? That's a question that I would like more answers on. We read that these children of Israel, you know, they, they copied the customs of these people. They learned the ways of the heathen. They flirted and fooled with them. And anyway, you know, finally they ended up being in sacrificing their children, worshiping idols. It says the land ran with the blood of their children. So we see here lust, fornication, unbelief, murmuring. In the end, they were destroyed. They failed. That's the story of the children of Israel. Now, the angels which kept not their first estate. And if we think we have problems and we have troubles here on earth, we can uh, oftentimes contribute to them to the fallen, you know, the fallen nature or the curse that is upon the earth. But look here that at one time there was a problem in heaven. It says that these angels who kept not their first estate. We read in Isaiah that Satan, this most beautiful angel that God had ever made, he pitted his will against God's will. He rebelled. He said, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit in the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights, and I will be like the Most High. Five times he pitted his will against God's will, and God wouldn't stand for it. God cleaned house. He, God threw him down, and the Bible in Revelation, we get the idea that he drew a third part of the angels with him. So they were thrown or dumped to this earth, so to speak. But here we have the promise that they are chained. They are in restraint. And that is a wonderful promise to us. I think we recognize that Satan is powerful. We read in Job that he was traveling to and fro about the whole earth. I think we do well to recognize that. On the other, on the other hand, let's always claim the promise that God is the one who is all-powerful. God will not allow Satan to do anything that is against God's will. God is omniscient. God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. Let's always claim that promise. Satan has limitation of location, but God does not. Now, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. In Genesis, it tells us that they were wicked before the Lord exceedingly. And we, we, we could question, you know, when were these people of Sodom and Gomorrah, when were they right with God? Well, the history timeline would tell us that Sodom and Gomorrah were burnt with fire between four and 500 years after the flood. Between four and 500 years after the flood. And can you just imagine with me, think... Of our country, you know, we are close to 250 years. And think how we have progressed down in 250 years. So we can't imagine these, these people of Sodom and Gomorrah most likely, in all probability, were descendants of Noah. They knew about God when this settlement started, so to speak. 
but they came into this place where they were sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And I had to think of this. My son and I were in Texas this summer in September after the severe drought in Texas. It was about a month after. And uh, some of these ranches in Texas are very barren, very little grass, even if they get rain, the, the panhandle especially. Well, we visited in, in central Texas that was river bottom ground. There was 1,000-acre field that had received rain five weeks earlier. And I, I just, this just stays in my mind. 1,000-acre field with trees way in the background, you know, on the horizon. And this, this was just a picture to behold. And I just had to think of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was probably what their land looked like. The Bible tells us it was a well-watered plain. And Ezekiel, we also read that so the sin of Sodom was pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and not taking care of the needy. You know, sin like this equals punishment with God. He destroyed them. Looking at the individuals now, these were the three groups. The individuals of the heir of Balaam for reward. Now, Balaam is a very interesting character. He there's, he, he wrote some of the nicest words of prophecy in the Bible that there is. But he, he seemed to be a prophet for hire. Well, anyway, we know that when he first asked God to go, God told him, don't go. Wouldn't it have been very simple for Balaam and for the children of Israel and for the enemies if that is just what Balaam would have done? You know, at that time, that was the word of God. What came from God to a prophet, that was the word of God, for the most part. But anyway, Balaam, initially God told him, don't go. It would have been very simple, he would have listened. But then he promised only to do what God tells him. And he ended up casting a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The lesson I get from Balaam is, you know, let's not ask God about things that are plain in his word. If, some, if a truth is established, let's not be asking God about it or to violate it. That's, that's one of the lessons. Another, th- another thing that really stands out, you know, Balaam had this nice prophetic uh, phrase that, let me die the death of the righteous. Let my latter end be like his. I think in his heart, he wanted so much what is right. But Peter tells us that to sum it all up, Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. You know, if I get, to me that seems that in prioritizing, that is what Balaam ended up wanting the most. Simply greed and honor. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Also looking at the uh, gainsaying of Korah. Korah was one of the leaders of the children of Israel. He was born in Egypt. He saw all the works of God. Korah was a Levite. He was a cousin to Moses and Aaron. He was a Levitical leader, and he gathered a following. But in his heart, he had rebellion, means to deny or to contradict the fact. He had jealousy in his heart against the government of God. So, we see here also the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is my way above God's way. I imagine Cain was taught the same truth, the same word of God that Abel was. 
But Cain chose to do things his own way. And that ended up being unacceptable worship. So we see here in Korah, we see rebellion. We see jealousy. In Balaam, we see greed, covetousness, honor, money, and a priority for reward. In Cain, we see self-righteousness and trusting in his own work, his own way of worshiping God. In Sodom, we see being self-satisfied and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. In the angels, we see pride, wanting to be like God. In Israel, we see unbelief. All of these violate the love of God. You know, truth is balanced. We live in a fallen world, but we claim the great promises of God. So we, to me, this tells us, you know, we need to teach God's great provisions, but also teach human responsibility. I think that is so important. Truth is balanced. You know, a man can take, a person can take one aspect of truth and run away with it. That's usually what heresy is. Truth needs to be balanced. So, again, one thing that always stands out to me in Scripture is we, we claim, and we see this over and over in Scripture, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we claim this divine blessing of God. And it's right that we should do that. But usually, with this divine blessing, also there was a human work of obedience. Search that out in Scripture. They go together. There was usually a human work of obedience. And, and I, I'll just share my heart. I think sometimes, you know, we are a people that do not... You know, we are, we are somewhat scared of the word good works, so to speak. Because, you know, there, are, there, are, there is a wrong way of, of, of having works. But I think we do, we do too much pussyfooting around good works. And, uh, you know, Christians are the only people that can have good works. If a, if a sinner does it for selfish reasons, it's evil work. And if a, if a person does it for the wrong motive, it can be a dead work. You know, Christians are the ones that have good works. So let's remember, just be faithful, be obedient to God. Now, if we are kept by the power of God unto salvation, and we have the mindset that we will earnestly contend for the faith, if we bring these two together, I think we will run well. As if Paul writes in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand. Now, just sharing some positives yet of how to stay in the love of God, and how to earnestly contend for the faith. And I would just like to encourage you, this list is much longer than what I will share with you. Just encourage you to go pursue looking into this. I think one of the first ones and one of the most important ones is simply don't forget God. You know, the children of Israel, these seceding generations, we read in Judges over and over and over that they forgot God. We, we, would, we should always have the attitude of fearing God and honoring God, being God-honoring. And also, number two, one that's very important is to live in repentance toward God. Over and over in the New Testament, we have the phrase, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, have a hunger for God's word, the established truth. I'm always so impressed 
In Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted of the devil those three times, he always answered, in the beginning of his response, he always answered with the phrase, it is written. And my friends, you know, we are bombarded with information these days. But let's always remember there is nothing like the it is written word of God in our day. It is written. Number four, we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit also. And the Spirit and His Word will always be in synchrony with each other. Be sensitive to the Spirit. Have a hunger for God's Word. Number five, let's go ahead and read some of these last verses in Jude, starting in verse 17. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Skipping down to verse 20. But, yea, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God and our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. We had this phrase, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. This is again the faith that is mentioned in the beginning. The most holy faith. The most holy faith is truth. Truth is eternal. It is precious. Ask for it. Search it out. Cherish it. Love it. If, some, if something is the truth, do not surrender it at any cost. If it is not the truth, do not accept it under any amount of pressure. The most holy faith. And also, the phrase praying in the Holy Ghost, just a Warning to all of us, to myself first, that there is a difference between saying our prayers and praying in the Holy Ghost. One of the ways to keep us in the love of God, in the earnestly contending for the faith, is praying in the Holy Ghost. And I think one that's very important is, number seven that I have here, is keep yourselves in the love of God. You know, if we do the things, or try to do with his help, if we do the things that God loves... That will take care of a lot of issues. Do the things that God loves. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Be committed to walk with him in righteousness. So, closing yet with Paul writes in Romans, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You know, we might say that we have experienced the mercy. Well, the final mercy will be when Christ returns. He says, For now is our salvation nearer than we first believed. The full salvation, the full mercy of God is coming, my friends, when Christ returns. And if we are his children, we have this promise that we can be with him forever. Paul also give us, gives us the promise concerning that last two verses in Jude. Paul says he is able to Jude says he is able to keep us from, Paul, uh, from falling. Paul writes that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul also writes to the Ephesians that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above 
all that we ask or think. So God bless you on your journey with Jesus as you earnestly contend for the faith. Let's pray, kneeling.